Hi, I'm Sean Smith. Hi there, welcome to Job Creators Radio Show, an international talk show focused on individuals, families, professionals, and organizations committed to meaningful employment for persons with disabilities. I'm your host, Sean Smith, founder of Don't Dis My Ability. Today's special guest is none other than Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Temple Grandin didn't talk until she was three and a half years old. She was fortunate to get early speech therapy. Her teachers also taught her how to wait and take turns when playing board games, and she was mainstreamed into a normal kindergarten at age five. She became a prominent author and speaker on both autism and animal behavior. Today, she's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She also has a successful career consulting on both livestock handling equipment design and animal welfare. She's been featured on Larry King, 2020, 60 Minutes. And on top of that, HBO even made an Emmy award-winning movie about her life. And most recently, Temple was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And I'm going to connect with Temple right now. Welcome to the show, Temple. Great to be here. Glad to have you on. Great to be here. Awesome. I I also want to mention I'm also a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. That's right. I missed that. And how long have you been at Colorado State? I've been there 26 years. Wow. Incredible. And so a lot of the questions I have for you, Temple, are really, they're all around employment. And I'm really interested to get your take on a lot of these because you've been everywhere and you just have so much experience. So I guess I'd like to kind of hear your perspective on what meaningful employment is. Well, I think it depends uh, upon uh, some situations. Uh, One of the things I'm finding, especially on the fully verbal end of the autism spectrum, people with ADHD and some dyslexics, I've worked all my life on designing equipment. I've worked in major big meat companies, and I've run into so many millwrights and engineers that I know are on the autism autism spectrum in full jobs. Recently, I have grandfathers and grandmothers coming up to me when their grandson is diagnosed, finding, figuring out, well, you know, I'm on the spectrum. I've been in IT on, all my life. So these are people working at the regular job level. But the problem I'm seeing today with some of these kids that are fully verbal is they're getting so overprotected that I've ran into two boys um, uh, just within the last year who had never gone in a store and bought something all by themselves. And I was doing that when I was seven. You know, that's not going to help them to be successful in employment if they don't learn things like shopping. So you've got the people like this that should be just in the regular employment, uh, getting the regular jobs. And then the lucky ones, they get to work for Silicon Valley and probably run Silicon Valley companies. I mean, Einstein had a lot of autistic traits. And then you have somebody that's that's much more severely impacted. Um, You know, you get into the whole discussion about sheltered workshops. I tend to be a bottom-up thinker, so I'm going to put different situations in different categories. And something that's the right thing to do, you know, for a real smart high school kid may not be the right thing to do for somebody that um, I'm doing just any regular job at the normal fast pace is impossible. Um, Another thing that I think is a real good route is an entrepreneur route. That's how I started my livestock business. And when I first started out, I didn't make all that much money. You know, and gradually it built up to where I made a lot of money at doing it. And I think freelance and entrepreneurs often a really good way to go. Uh, and the way I sold jobs 
is I showed off my portfolio of drawings and, and pictures of jobs. And, you know, when people saw that, I got some respect. Right. The, the value, like you could sell them on the value of what you were offering. That's right. That's absolutely right. And so where, and I figured the... that out very early, to, to, and I had to make sure that my portfolio was very neatly and professionally presented. So that, exactly. And so where do you see this, this shift? Like what's, what has happened over time for this shift to happen where these kids just don't seem to have the, the hustle? Well, a lot of kids aren't learning work skills. Um, it seems just uh, since they changed the DSM and since all the phones have come out, that all kids don't seem to have the hustle. But it's hurting the autistic kids and the ADHD kids more than it's hurting the regular kids. They'll bumble their way through it. Um, but I, I think one of the things is kids need to learn how to work. And I advocate in my talks, 11-year-olds, they need to be doing a job on a schedule outside the home, like maybe walk dogs for the neighbors, uh, uh, help out at the community center if they belong to a church, uh, church usher, help set up chairs for the social, something they've got to do every, every week or every day. And the instant they're legal, which in my state it's 14 for retail jobs and most states 16, they need to be getting regular jobs. Because what I'm seeing in the autism field, at least with the fully verbal kids, the ones that get jobs are going out and doing really, really super well. And the ones that are getting addicted to video games and not learning how to shop, uh, they are not doing well. And it's the problem of sort of getting almost overprotected. Do you think the, the trend for a lot of these kids to, to go into, into video games and animation has to do with their social anxiety? Yes, it does, but we've got to control the video games. Um, the thing they've got to learn if they want to do animation, which is fine, or video game programming, is you've got to do tasks for other people. But what I'm seeing with these kids, they're not learning video game programming. And one of the reasons they're not learning it is nobody's introduced programming to them. In the old days of video games, gamers learned programming on old DOS computers and that sort of stuff because they'd see the code. But today, I call it the computer doesn't show its guts today. So the kids are not going to learn programming unless it's formally introduced. And the lessons are free online. And I talk about that in all of my talks. Um, but I'm seeing with all kids problems with work skills. I've talked to many, many employers. The normal kids, they'll get through it. But there's too many kids on the autism spectrum playing video games in the basement, and that's all they're doing. Right. And for those who are going out and finding jobs how important is it to fail well sometimes you are going to fail i got fired from a job uh, yeah you sometimes are going to fail and i think a lot of kids today they can't handle failure and when i was a little kid i'd experiment and experiment and experiment with my little kite toys that i was making and sometimes my designs did not work a sail on my red wagon that was a disaster i had a boat that tipped over and wasn't very seaworthy um but you learn from those mistakes. I think a lot of kids today are afraid of, um, of, um, of making mistakes. And the other big thing is kids are not just getting out and doing hands-on things. We've got to get kids out building stuff, doing things outside. Uh, we need, I don't suggest banning video games or banning social media, but it needs to be limited to an hour or two hours a day because we've got to get them doing other things. And I've written about think, this in one of my books, The Loving Push on the Video Games. Do you think there's a way to incorporate the, the two? 
video games and trying to teach these important life skills? Well, I think the best way to teach life skills is you've got to go out into the community and just do it. And I was a lot, there were a lot of things I was afraid of. You know what I used to be terrified of that, I'm, that I do all the time? Public speaking and airplanes. But you know, those were the two things I was the most terrified of. And, and I got and over the how, airplane thing. How did I get over it? Mind, airplanes yeah, had to go from it? scary to interesting. Right. So you found the, the context I got to fly in the jump you. seat in, in an airplane one time. That had a lot to do with getting me over it. And it was a great so a little, big airplane. It was an old constellation. So little tips and tricks on trying to find, make things interesting to get people involved in it. And I walked and out that, of the first talk I gave in graduate school. I panicked and I walked out. And you know how I got over that? I made sure next time I had super good slides. And then if I panicked, prepared. I always had my slides. Right. So you had a backup plan. That's right. And I tell my students now, and a lot of students when they have to do their first animal science talk, are really scared. And I make sure they have really good slides. And I said, the worst thing that can happen is you read your PowerPoint. It's not great, but you'll get through it. And the next time you won't do that. But people know it's your first talk. And, and, and But you have to get back on the horse. Exactly. I think sometimes well, failing problem, is the most I'm important seeing, thing we can do. Yeah, that's right. And and I'm seeing too many kids getting too coddled. Where And I think some moms, their identity is tied up with being a special needs mom, and they can't let go. I suggested to one boy that uh, he needs to go in and buy some printer paper. And the mom broke down and started crying, saying, I can't let go. And all I suggested was for the kid to walk in the $10 bill, cash, and buy a ream of paper. That's all I suggested. Nothing dangerous, nothing scary. So it's, it's beyond learning. He was 13 years old and fully verbal and looked like someone who ought to work for Google. And going in to buy the paper was hard enough, so how could this person go and I think it was harder on her than it was harder on him. So you think parents are, are kind of holding their, their kids back from... In some uh, cases, they are. What I'm, mm-hmm. There's different kinds of parents. And I've had parents sure. come up to me and say, well, I, I pushed my kid. What you have to do is you've got to stretch your kid. You don't throw them in the deep end of the pool. I'll tell you something that doesn't work. You take an 18-year-old girl who's never worked, shove her in a busy clothing store during Christmas rush. That does not work. That's like putting her on a bucking bronco. You, know, you need to work into it with something easier than that. You don't do that sort of stuff. What you have to do is stretch, and you've always got to stretch and just get outside the comfort zone. You don't throw them in the deep end of the pool, but if you don't stretch, they don't develop. And, and that makes sense, Tubble, because really, yeah. when you think about exercising, you would stretch before you exercise, right? You're not just going to go and run a race. That's you, right. You prepare for it. So you, we should do the same thing that's around right. employment or self-employment. Well, that's no, that right. Well, I'd like to start out with 11-year-olds walking dogs for the neighbors, not their own dog, but Mr. Jones's dog. And you might even have to have Mr. Jones's house key. And you've got to rise to the adult responsibility. And most kids, well, I'd say just about all the fully verbal kids and even some of maybe the nonverbal kids could do that. You know, learning how to do a task on a schedule outside the family. And in the old days, in my generation, we had paper routes. But since we no longer have paper routes, I'm trying to think up things the substitute for that that will cost nothing. It doesn't cost anything to get your kid walking dogs. Or if you belong to a church, 
for your kid to do a church job or the kid volunteers at the old folks' home or helps out with the tents at the farmer's market. These are things that uh, can just be set up in the neighborhood. Sure. And, and most families would have a rake handy. They would have a shovel. You know, there, there are lots of things around that you don't need to spend money on to go out and do work in your neighborhood. No, you don't. You have a dog leash, too. That's, like, real easy. And people and are, how, what's what, happening, I'm sorry, I forgot, I'm sorry I interrupted. That's okay, go right ahead. Yeah, well, uh, why don't you just go ahead and ask your question. Well, when how important is volunteering for, for kids who are maybe not ready to enter the, the working world yet? How important is it to get that volunteer experience? Very important because it teaches work skills. Volunteer work counts as long as it's on a schedule outside the family. It's not optional. If you volunteer, say you're going to volunteer for the next six months to do a certain thing, you've got to do it. It's like a job. No, it can be extremely helpful. And all of this, I think, needs to start at around 11 years of age, where my generation started the paper routes. And then young kids inside the home need to be doing chores. Uh, But I'm seeing just recently more and more problems with kids not learning stuff like shopping, ordering food in restaurants, things that I learned when I was very young. How important is eye contact, or is it important at all? Well, it's important to a certain extent, but sometimes I think it gets overemphasized. I have a hard time hearing sometimes when I have to look at somebody in the eyes. Um, it's important, but I, I'll, it's probably not as important as learning shopping or, and then, or learning driving. It's going to take longer to learn driving. I did 200 miles on dirt roads before we went near any traffic. We're going to need a tank of gas burned up in a really safe place before we even do driver's ed because driver's ed in a lot of cases throws them in the deep end of the pool and they don't even know how to run the car and they're out there in traffic. No, you don't do that. It seems like common sense, but if it's common sense, how come it's not being done? I think people are losing common sense and I think it's um, gets to getting glued to electronics. Uh, during the eclipse, uh, it was 95% at CSU, I noticed that the eclipse made little eclipse-shaped shadows on the sidewalk by the library from the trees. I didn't see one student stop and look at that. They all walked over it. I didn't know that eclipses did that, but I stopped to look at it, and I made sure my students looked at it. Sure. Well, uh, people who are They were just all glued to their phones even during the eclipse. Maybe, maybe about right. 10% of the students were really interested, and there were plenty of glasses around. We'd, the university passed out 50,000 pairs of glasses. There were plenty of glasses. Um, but I was sort of appalled at how oblivious so many students were to the eclipse, because even at 95%, it's pretty cool. And it's, it's not like this happens every year, right? This is, this is something people should no, stop I made and take sure, stock I made sure, of. I timed our lunch so that we'd be out there 15 minutes right before it went into, you know, the most close to getting total. And I didn't know that eclipses made weird shadows on the, through the trees. I discovered that on my own. But these other students just walking over it. That they was right in front of our library where I saw it. And I think it's well, kind of appalling. Just walking around, you know, looking at their phones. I think, you know, they they're not they don't do hands-on things. I just talked to a lady who runs a therapeutic riding stable, and she has volunteers come in, just normal teenagers. She had to show four or five of these kids how to hook up a garden hose to the faucet. Wow. 
I think that's where common sense is gone. And she, I just talked to her like three days ago. And this is this is something that happens a lot. I know that like in, in certain culinary programs, they've had to modify what they're teaching students because now students are coming in without knowing how to boil water. Well, they're not doing any hands-on stuff. And we need to be getting back. I think the worst thing the schools did was taking out home ec and taking out art and music and theater and woodworking and sewing and all of these hands-on things. They teach common sense. I will never forget the sewing project I wrecked when I was a kid because I got in a hurry, cut the fabric wrong, and there was no way to get more fabric. I messed mine up, too. Be a little more careful before you cut it. What what can we do to really help parents? I mean, I, I don't think that they realize the, the situation that, that's kind of happening in, until it's too late. And in some cases, they, I think they, they end up with worse. adult kids. Where I'm seeing this problem, the worst is, is just more with the younger parents. You know, we're getting parents now that grew up with a lot of electronics and 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 people think you can do everything with electronics. You can't. You know, I'm, I've been watching all the cleanup after the hurricane. I had somebody call, I had the Humane Society call me up yesterday about what to do about stranded cattle. And, and one of the things I reminded them of is if those cattle are near the coast, one of the problems is salt water may have come in there. And it's a limit how much salt water they, they can drink. Right. That could be one of the biggest problems for them. Is, you know, if they're just like on a little island stranded, uh, if they have enough water, they, they'll probably be okay. But if they're drinking salty water, that's not okay. They would become dehydrated? Oh, yeah, same way. You can't, there's a limit to how much salt you can right. drink. You know, the old thing, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink, you know, from the sea. Yeah, it would kill you. And are there are there more and more co-op programs happening for students um, on the autism autism spectrum, or neurodiverse students in in junior high and high school? You mean to help in them high schools prepared? or in colleges, or uh, more so, uh, I guess, middle schools and in high schools? Well, I'm seeing more of that, but I'm also seeing what I call jumping off the service cliff, or what, what a lot of professionals, where a student graduates from high school and he has no idea what the future is. He's never worked. Or I see a student with autism graduating from college and then fails in the workplace because he went through his whole career and never had a job. You see, you want to get rid of those sudden cliffs. When I, I slowly went from a student to doing more entrepreneur work. So my early entrepreneur work was painting signs for the Arizona State Fair Carnival. And I just uh, showed my portfolio to an old sign painter and he put me to work. Um, so when I finally got out of graduate school, uh, I already was working. I was writing for the Fire Arrangement Magazine. I had a job with a construction company for a year and a half. I was already doing uh, work. It wasn't a sudden jumping off a cliff. We've got to avoid that. That's why I'm emphasizing with the kids that are in the pipeline now that I want to get the work skills uh, started early. But on the other hand, it's never too late to start. And you've got to just get them out there and start getting them to do stuff. And what do we do with the video game addict that's 22 years old? We're going to have to wean him off slowly. And I have a book called The Loving Push where we talk. I go through all the research on video game addiction. And you have to replace the games with something else. And let's replace it with something that could be a good job like car mechanics. 
Let's introduce them to engines. Hopefully that bug will bite. Or maybe we introduce them to programming, start introducing them to different jobs, and gradually replace the gaming with something else. You can't just take it away. And you give them choices. I'm, not, I'm a big advocate of choices. When it gets into jobs for some of these kids, let's have some choices. But sitting in a room all day is not going to be one of the choices. That was something with me when I was a, when I was a teenager. That was just not allowed. I spent a lot of time cleaning the horse barn at our school. I didn't study very much. But you know what I learned? Cleaning nine stalls every day, I learned how to work. One of the most important things I learned. And it, the work ethic, I think, is one of the most important things. How do, how do we get parents to model this behavior for their kids? If a lot of parents are on their devices, then the kids, I, I think, just, I just, may, um, I'm not entitled. very nice about it. I'm just not very nice about it. I spent 20 years in the construction industry, a rough industry. So I had some of the best time I ever had sitting around the job trailer, and I get really laughing hard about stuff that I can't repeat. And but talking about how to build things, and and I just tell them, look, you got to get your kid out of there, and and I said, get him a job. You need to get off your phone too, because I had mentors that were rough with me. There's a scene in the movie where the guy, the boss, puts the deodorant down there and says, "You stink, use it." That scene actually happened, and the ladies did take me shopping. Both of those things actually happened. I was in my early 20s. I was furious at the time. But now I thank that boss. I thank him, thank him, thank him, and I thank his secretaries. Were you furious because he was right and and it was kind of a blow to the (laughs) ego? I was furious because I didn't want to change. But on the other hand, I wanted the job. So this brings up another thing. To motivate the kid, there's got to be a goal, and I did want the job. And... And when I finally started to study, it was when Mr. Carlock got me interested in science, and now I had a goal. The reason to study is so I could become a scientist. Studying was a way to a goal. I think that's really an important thing. Something tangible at the end. Yes, nothing abstract, tangible. And, and as I go what? back and forth between a tech company and then I go – when I was working with the meat plants, uh, working with skilled millwrights that were dyslexic, some of them definitely autistic. I was just working on revamping my autism talk, and I just went to a – they just built a new beef plant up in Idaho, and they didn't quite have it finished. But, boy, I've got some pictures in there of the center track restrainer to show off all the steel work just to show people that, you know, the people that build these things are not stupid. You know, don't stick your nose up at skilled trades. And these are jobs that are not going to get replaced by robots or computers. You know, like there's pumping stations right now broken by Harvey. Those are never going to be fixed by computers. The the trades are something that, you know, it, when I was a kid, my parents always told me, and I'm sure a lot of people feel this way, you know, they kind of really hit home. If you had a university degree, you're going to be set. Well, that never happened. <laughs> uh, well, I'm so seeing now, too know, many kids are, with a university degree that are doing nothing. Do you think they're overeducated or just underemployed? No, I'm not going to say they're overeducated. I think the problem is, you know, not doing the work skills. I, you know, before I got my Ph.D., I had two meatpacking plant managers go to me, what do you want a Ph.D. for? Well, there's things about having a Ph.D. I mean, there's some knowledge things that I learned from that that are really, really good. Uh, I like doing both the 
the, the hands-on stuff and the drawings and all that and uh, and doing the more academic stuff, um, there's a place for having knowledge. I remember my 20s, a dairy ventilation place had me do a little research for them. And I found out when I took a course in ventilation management at the University of Illinois that we'd done everything wrong. You know, that's where you need to have some learning from the books. You need to have both. But I think for a lot of individuals, maybe a two-year technical degree would be a better choice. I think we have to start looking at what do you want to be? What is the goal? I, I agree. A degree is I, a path I, to a goal. Exactly. And so are, do you find that there are more and more individual, neurodiverse individuals leaning towards the, the trades because of the type of learning that's involved? Well, they're not leaning towards the trades because they don't even get a chance to play with engines anymore. What I'm seeing is an awful lot of kids playing with Legos. And Legos are a good thing, but I think Legos need to be a stepping stone. Let's get some real tools. When kids are around 11, let's get a hammer, nails, screwdrivers, all hand tools, hand drill, it'll be all hand tools. A little teeny bit older, he can have an electric drill. That would be his only power tool. And just get them working with tools. I mean, right now, kids don't know which end, how that you're supposed to hold the hammer out on the end of the handle to get leverage. You know, so they're interested in Legos? Well, let's combine Legos with, you know, take apart old forklift pellets. They're free if you look around. Um, and, and uh, yeah, straighten nails on concrete. I used to do that. And just, you know, make stuff out of plumbing parts. You can go to Home Depot and you can get all these fantastic plastic plumbing parts that you can cut up and glue together, make stuff out of them. And kids can cut that really easily with a hacksaw. That's safe. Get the Legos integrated with doing some real tools. That's not being done. No, I think Legos no, are great things, but but they but there's a, they're a stepping stone to real tools. And uh, do you think cooking is important as well to, to get yes, kids introduced yes, to I cooking? Yes, I do. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And sewing Ye- too. You know, of course, in the 50s, girls were taught cooking and sewing. I hated cooking, but I loved sewing. Uh, it's making things. And, and then theater, you know, they've taken that out. They're still getting into academics. In some states, all you can learn is English, algebra, and sports. That doesn't prepare you very well for life. It, it doesn't. And so it seems to me, you know, and, and through the job creators movement, really we see this big push for um, entre- entrepreneurship for the neurodiverse. I agree with that. I totally and, agree with that. And I'd love to gain your perspective on, on why you see this as an important shift. Well, that is how I got started. It started out my first sign that I painted when I was in boarding school. I painted it for, for a hair salon that belonged to the wife of one of the carpenters that was working on the building. And I had to make a sign that she would want. So I put the Breck lady on it. That was my very first sign. I got paid 10 bucks for it. And then I started painting signs. I made some signs for some feed yards. I painted signs for stupid exhibits over at the Arizona State Fair. That's entrepreneur. And you start it out one little project at a time. And fortunately, there was a really nice contractor, Jim the contractor, who helped me set up my corporation. Now it's an LLC, but LLCs didn't exist when I was getting started. And I had to have professional help to set up my corporation. He showed me how to get an answering service so I'd get my phone calls. You know, there's going to be some need for some help on some of that stuff. Now you don't need that with, um, you've got the, you can just do the cell phone and do the voice messaging. 
But I, I, whole thing I started was entrepreneur. And then gradually it switched to I design a corral for somebody. Then I wrote about it in the farm magazine. And then I realized how valuable the press pass I had. I could get into national meetings with gigantic big registration fees for free with that press pass. I took advantage of that. I saw that. And, I, and I'd write in the, in the trade magazines. I'd find out so-and-so's building a new plant. I'd call them up and say, engineering office, please. Cold call. And you know how I got over being scared of cold calling? Because I had a boss when I worked for the construction company that forced me to do my first cold call. And ever since then, I've been doing them. That was strictly entrepreneur on my business. And I I also did things like I called the Oasis Apartments where I lived, the Oasis Building, Suite 218. Sounds a lot classier. It it does. And before you became an entrepreneur, how many how many jobs did you have before you started on your own? I was um, uh, I was a pro, you know working about five years out in the, in the industry, and I, I had I had to quit the construction company because I also did their advertising, and they asked me to buy ads that were not getting paid for, so I couldn't do that ethically. Um, you know, put ads in magazines, and I knew that they were not going to pay for them. Right. There's no way I could keep that job. Um, you know, it it you know it happened very gradually. Fortunately, my family had some money that helped, but I always felt like I've got to work. You know, and then you know I gradually built it up, and I got to where I made a lot of money in my job. Now, one of the places where I probably needed some help was figuring out how to price some of my stuff. I think some of it I priced too low. And this and is where there... getting some advice on how to set the business up and just things like like uh, how to do the taxes right so you can get the right deductions. That's stuff that people are going to need help on. Unfortunately, my contractor friend helped me on that. And do you, do you know of support networks for neurodiverse entrepreneurs to, to tap into to ask for this type of help? Well, no, I just got it. Fortunately, uh, my friend Jim, the contractor, um, referred me to his own lawyer to set up, show me how to set up my business. Uh, somewhere along the line, an accountant got referred because uh, personal taxes you do differently than a, than a corporate. Um, you've got to get some help with that. And but I just sort right. of figured it out in the neighborhood, and 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 I, you know, now there's stuff online. And the other thing that Jim, the contractor, did for me because I didn't know about answering services is that he referred me to his answering service so my phone would get answered. And first of all, I bought a PhoneMate answering machine. It was a total piece of garbage. And, <laughs> and then um, I, I uh, discovered the answering service. But there were people that recognized my talents. Jim, the contractor, seeked me out because he knew my drawing abilities, and he wanted me to design jobs for him. So I started designing jobs for him, and then he helped me um, with some of the business stuff on just how to set it up. These people are going to need help with that. It, I agree. I, I find it it's it's very important. It it really is. Uh, I think I'd like to see more people tap into their network and ask for help uh, than take a passive role. I was never bashful asking for help. When I was in college, 
I failed my first math quiz. I went right to the teacher. When I was in graduate school at Arizona State and I failed my first statistics quiz, I found this wonderful lady, another graduate student, to tutor me. And she saved me. And the way I paid her, her mother owned an all-wino bar in downtown Phoenix. And my job to pay for statistics tutoring was to take an electric saw and cut out the floor in the back of the barn, bar with the winos right there leaning over the bar. And uh, the beer thing drained underneath the floor. It was a fetid swamp under there. And I was instructed to just put plywood over it and put linoleum on top. So it still drained into the swamp. That paid for statistics tutoring. Thank you, statistics tutor. You saved me. But I found her on my own. It's called self-advocacy today. Back in my days, it was called find a tutor before you flunk out of school. Right. Well, and, and you bring and up an important what I did. point. You know, uh, the point of bartering. And because people, people yep. with a disability label often don't have um, enough money to, to pay for different things to set up their own business. But there's the barter system that can be used. Well, I used the barter system, and I, I uh, put a piece of plywood over the most disgusting fetid swamp in a downtown wino bar in Phoenix that you ever saw. That was the price for statistics tutoring, and she also helped me with my thesis statistics. There you go. Each, each, you know, First, every, every turn work around. on her bar, which was all, you know, kind of skilled trade, you know, carpentry work. And with you, Temple, and if I'm if I'm at, out in left field, help bring me closer to center. But by seeing in, in pictures the way that you do, for individuals who are neurodiverse who have their thoughts jumbled up, I wonder if there's a, a market for illustrators who can help draw people's thoughts in in a way that are coherent. Well, you know, yeah, I like think a... in pictures, and there's others that think in mathematics and patterns. I discuss this in detail in my book, The Autistic Brain. I want to make it very clear that not everybody on the spectrum thinks in pictures. Right. Um, and then the problem with jumbled thoughts, I found in writing making outlines was helpful. Another thing that was very helpful when I did my book, Thinking in Pictures, is Betsy, my editor, she didn't do any line editing, but boy, she cut stuff out of it, moved big chunks around. Um, it, it, you sort of have to think about where you have the disordered thoughts. Uh, there's a tendency to really overgeneralize. Um, to keep my schedule, I still use a paper calendar where I can see the entire month altogether. I don't like sequential calendars. I like to look at the paper calendar, and I go, I have to leave an entire day, day for travel because I'm flying to the East Coast. I've got a two-hour time zone change and a three-hour flight. That eats up an entire day. Coming home, I can do it in the evening. It does not eat up an entire day. But I like to look at that on the calendar. So and you can see it all. I can see and it all. It, That's what I prefer. Somebody else might prefer to put it on their phone, you know, just but figure out something that's going to work. But one of the reasons I was not losing homework and stuff like that First of all, I had the goal of becoming a scientist. Second of all, when I was a child, it was pounded into me about being on time. That was just required. Dinner was at 6 o'clock, and you had to be there. And what would it mean if if you were late? Well, get yelled at. There's <laughs> I, a consequence, I right? Yeah. Right. And if I had a tantrum at school, 
the consequence was uh, no uh, television for one night. But on the other hand, my ability in art was always encouraged. And I was encouraged to draw lots and lots and lots of different things. If you've got a little third grader who's good in math, don't make them do baby math. Let's introduce them to programming. There's all kinds of fabulous things online you can find. Use the image function on Google and start typing in mathematical words. It's amazing the stuff you will find if you use the Google image search for finding math, math web pages. You, know, you want to build on the area of strength. Exactly. Uh, there's too much focus on what people can't do. If we shift our energy well, I agree with on, on the focusing and, and, and helping them rock what they excel at, then well, let's a lot of things will change. What I do with, do with the cattle is basically industrial design and engineering. You've got the industrial design side, and you've got the more mathematical side. Look at your iPhone or your Samsung smartphone. That interface was designed by an artist, artist, not an engineer. The engineers had to make the phone innards work. Right. You need to have both. And if there had been an art design on Fukushima, that mess wouldn't have happened. When I found out why that happened, I couldn't believe they could make a mistake. To me, just stupid. But it's a visual thinking mistake. I learned it's not stupidity. It's lack of having a visual thinker on the team. It's not a very good idea when you live next to the sea. They put your super important electrically operated emergency cooling pump and the generators in a non-waterproof basement. If they'd had watertight doors, that would have never happened. So think, thinking ahead. Well, I can see the water going into the basement. I can't design a nuclear reactor. But all I know is if, um, if that pump doesn't work, I won't use any swear words, but it's a lot. Well, swear words aren't bad enough for breach of containment. It's still leaking. It's a mess. And so when you look at, at somebody else's work, Temple, are you able to kind of pick, can you see everything they didn't do? Well, it depends what kind of work it is. All at one thing, I'm very proud of myself that I saw the little eclipse shadows on the sidewalk in front of our library. I did not know eclipses cast those kind of shadows, but I saw those all on my own where every other student was walking over them. And I go, wait a minute, there's something really weird with the shadows. And then I looked at it closer, and like I said, it looked like little baby eclipses. And then I took my eclipse glasses and glanced up at the eclipse, and it looked the same. I know hundreds of other students did not. And do you, do you attribute that to being neurodiverse? I partially. I also attribute it to just being too hung up on their phones. And they were walking around looking at their phones. I was kind of appalled uh, at the amount of students that just seemed oblivious. There was about 10% of students on that quad in front of our library and our student union building uh, that were interested in the eclipse. But other kids were just walking around oblivious. And this is right when it was 90 and 95%. I was out That's on that quad for a good 15 or 20 minutes right during the absolute time where it was getting the closest to being total. We weren't total. We were 95%. Incredible. You know, I was, it was just appalling. And I was there snapping. I snapped pictures of that sidewalk by our library on my phone. I believe you me, it's going to be in tons of my future talks as, I think being be. neurodiverse might have something to do with noticing it but I don't think it was everything to do with noticing it no uh, 
I, I believe that people who are neurodiverse really sense and feel the world more deeply than others. And, and when we're based, you know, we have a lot of structure, consistency, and routine, we notice things that are outside of that more than others do. Well, I, I, well, I know my talks on cattle handling, I say I've got the same old slide I've used for years of a chain hanging down in a chute. I said, why do I have to keep talking about that? Because people don't tie them up. Why do I have to talk about get the paper cup out of the chute, get the coat off the fence, get the vehicles with the dog in it away from the fence? I still got to talk about that because people aren't doing it. And I, and I, and I used to get people mad because I said it was stupid. It's not stupidity. They're not seeing it. They're simply not seeing it unless I give them a checklist. I have written checklists. In fact, I've got a new book called Temple Grandin's Guide to Working with Farm Animals. Lots of really nice colored pictures. And uh, it's got a checklist in there of all the visual dis- uh, distractions to look for. And I find that that helps people that are less visual. Definitely. Yeah, that, that we would. Need to have That's the, a good idea. The verbal people, too, because they're more linear in their thinking, where I tend to be more jumbled. And so when I've done some of my books, like Animals in Translation, Animals Make Us Human, and The Autistic Brain, I've had a co-writer and one of the reasons I have to have that is to organize the thoughts. That's the different minds working together there. Right. So a theme that I pick up on Temple in our conversation is really vulnerability and, and being open and, and willing to ask for help and accepting it. Well, I asked for help on, on tutoring when I was an undergraduate, and the lovely nice brand new math teacher, Mr. Dion, right out of the university, tutored me in his office. And then when I was in graduate school, I asked for another graduate student, and I replaced this disgusting floor in this, in this horrible wino bar to pay for the statistics tutoring. And how no, and I asked for it on my own. Right. So you took the initiative. We're, we're yeah, getting sure towards did. the end of our... We're getting towards the end of our talk, Temple, but I wanted to ask, what are some positive things that that maybe you can talk about in regards to entrepreneurship and and neurodiverse individuals? Well, with uh, kids in the pipeline, let's start it early. Lemonade stands. I can remember as a child a disastrous Kool-Aid stand, and I underestimated how much sugar you have in Kool-Aid. It's a disgusting amount. When you learn from that, let's get the entrepreneur stuff, you know, going early. Selling greeting, make greeting cards on your printer, sell them in the neighborhood. I went to Hallmark. I found out how you make cartoon cards. It's really easy. You draw your cartoon on a big piece of paper with real heavy Sharpie pens, put it on the scanner, paint it with Microsoft Paint, print it on nice cardstock. You can make them at home if you're a good artist. Make cards and sell them. You know, uh, let's start learning these skills young. No, I'm a big believer in entrepreneurship, and I've seen some. Uh, Chantille Cecile Kira, her son is nonverbal, and uh, he's uh, he he's got a you know, she's got a business started with him with flowers. Another ch- individual is nonverbal is doing baking. Uh, yes, and he does have to have people to run the the money part of the business, but he's doing baking and it's being sold. Yeah, I'm a big fan of all of this kind of stuff. And I think we we all have challenges, right? And and we all need help. Like for you, for example, with with your with your busy schedule and all the things that you do, um, do you have someone who who helps organize, like to book flights and and take care no, of kind of the, I do the logistics the, of things? I 
I don't let other people book flights because they book awful ones with 40-minute connections. Or they go, oh, they book a flight. I just got a thing the other day. The flight would have gotten in at midnight. I said, sorry, not going on that. Uh, they, they, um, I call the travel agency and they book them, but I pick them. And, and what I normally do is I let other people handle the hotels. I said, you get me a hotel, you know, just a normal mid-priced hotel. I'll let you book that. I'll book the flights. Um, because people that don't travel book often book dreadful flights. Right. That's our time for and today. The thing is, with, I, to, well, thank you, you so short. much for having me. Thanks for thanks for joining the Job Creators Movement. I'm very excited to meet you in person at Trailblazing in Florida. Okay, looking forward to seeing you. And I think entrepreneurship is a really great way for a lot of people people to go. And, and that's what I did in my business. And we're still doing it. I'm still doing well, it. I've got a wonderful guy now who, who does the drawings for me, but I'm still referring jobs to him. I'm still going over all the drawings. We've got drawings at lunch today we're going to go over. Well, that's I awesome. used to draw all the drawings myself. Perfect. Well, that's our time for today. Thanks again, Temple. All right. Thank you for having me. Take care. Okay, bye.